Chapter Nine of Mister Midshipman Easy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mister Midshipman Easy by Captain Frank Marriott, read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Nine, in which Mister Easy finds himself on the other side of the Bay of Biscay. The next morning Jack Easy would have forgotten all about his engagement with the captain, had it not been for the waiter, who thought that, after the reception which our hero had given the first lieutenant, it would be just as well that he should not be disrespectful to the captain. Now Jack had not, hitherto, put on his uniform, and he thought this a fitting occasion, particularly as the waiter suggested the propriety of his appearance in it whether it was from a presentiment of what he was to suffer, Jack was not at all pleased, as most lads are, with the change in his dress. It appeared to him that he was sacrificing his independence. However, he did not follow his first impulse, which was to take it off again, but took his hat, which the waiter had brushed and handed to him, and then set off for the captain's lodgings. Captain Wilson received him as if he had not been aware of his delay in joining his ship, or his interview with his first lieutenant, but before breakfast was over Jack himself narrated the affair in a few words. Captain Wilson then entered into a detail of the duties and rank of every person on board of the ship, pointing out to Jack that where discipline was required it was impossible, when duty was carried on, that more than one could command, and that one was the captain, who represented the king in person, who represented the country, and that, as the orders were transmitted from the captain through the lieutenant, and from the lieutenant to the midshipmen, who in their turn communicated them to the whole ship's company, in fact it was the captain alone who gave the orders, and that every one was equally obliged to obey. Indeed, as the captain himself had to obey the orders of his superiors, the admiral and the admiralty, all on board might be said to be equally obliged to obey. Captain Wilson laid a strong emphasis on the word equally, as he cautiously administered his first dose. Indeed, in the whole of his address he made use of special pleading, which would have done credit to the bar for at the same time that he was explaining to Jack that he was entering a service in which equality could never for a moment exist, if the service was to exist, he contrived to show that all the grades were levelled by all being equally bound to do their duty to their country, and that, in fact, whether a seaman obeyed his orders or he obeyed the orders of his superior officer, they were in reality only obeying the orders of the country which were administered through their channels. Jack did not altogether dislike this view of the subject, and the captain took care not to dwell too long upon it. He then entered upon other details which he was aware would be more agreeable to Jack. He pointed out that the articles of war were the rules by which the service was to be guided, and that everybody, from the captain to the least boy in the ship, was equally bound to adhere to them that a certain allowance of provision and wine were allowed to each person on board, and that this allowance was the same to all, the same to the captain as to the boy, 
the same in quality as in quantity, everybody equally entitled to his allowance. That although there were of necessity various grades necessary in the service, and the captain's orders were obliged to be passed and obeyed by all, yet still, whatever was the grade of the officer, they were equally considered as gentlemen. In short, Captain Wilson, who told the truth and nothing but the truth, without telling the whole truth, actually made Jack fancy that he had at last found out that equality he had been seeking for in vain on shore, when at last he recollected the language used by Mr. Sawbridge the evening before, and asked the captain why that personage had so conducted himself. Now, as the language of Mr. Sawbridge was very much at variance with equality, Captain Wilson was not a little puzzled. However, he first pointed out that the first lieutenant was, at the time being, the captain, as he was the superior officer on board, as would Jack himself be, if he were the senior officer on board, and that, as he before observed, the captain or senior officer represented the country that, in the Articles of War, everybody who absented himself from the ship committed an error, or breach of those Articles, and if any error or breach of those Articles was committed by any one belonging to the ship, if the senior officer did not take notice of it, he then himself committed a breach of those Articles, and was liable himself to be punished, if he could not prove that he had noticed it. It was therefore to save himself that he was obliged to point out the error, and if he did it in strong language, it only proved his zeal for his country. "'Upon my honour, then,' replied Jack, "'there can be no doubt of his zeal, for if the whole country had been at stake, he could not have put himself in a greater passion.' "'Then he did his duty. But depend upon it, it was not a pleasant one to him and I'll answer for it, when you meet him on board, he will be as friendly with you as if nothing had happened." "'He told me that he'd soon make me know what a first lieutenant was. What did he mean by that?' inquired Jack. "'All zeal.' "'Yes, but he said that as soon as he got on board he'd show me the difference between a first lieutenant and a midshipman. All zeal! He said my ignorance should be enlightened by and by. All zeal! That he'd send a sergeant and marines to fetch me. All zeal! That he would put my philosophy to the proof. All zeal, Mr. Easy! Zeal will break out in this way, but we should do nothing in the service without it. Recollect that I hope and trust one day to see you also a zealous officer." Here Jack cogitated considerably, and gave no answer. "'You will, I am sure,' continued Captain Wilson, "'find Mr. Sawbridge one of your best friends.' "'Perhaps so,' replied Jack, "'but I did not much admire our first acquaintance.' "'It will perhaps be your unpleasant duty to find as much fault yourself. We are all equally bound to do our duty to our country. But, Mr. Easy, I sent for you to say that we shall sail to-morrow, and as I shall send my things off this afternoon by the launch, you had best send yours off also. At eight o'clock I shall go on board, 
and we can both go in the same boat. To this Jack made no sort of objection, and, having paid his bill at the fountain, he sent his chest down to the boat by some of the crew who came up for it, and attended the summons of the captain to embark. By nine o'clock that evening Mr. Jack Easy was safe on board His Majesty's sloop Harpy. When Jack arrived on board it was dark, and he did not know what to do with himself. The captain was received by the officers on deck, who took off their hats to salute him. The captain returned the salute, and so did Jack, very politely, after which the captain entered into conversation with the first lieutenant, and for a while Jack was left to himself. It was too dark to distinguish faces, and to one who had never been on board ship, too dark to move, so Jack stood where he was, which was not far from the main bits, but he did not stay long. The boat had been hooked on the quarter-davits, and the boatswain had called out, "'Set taunt, my lads!' And then, with the shrill whistle, and "'Away with her!' forward came galloping and bounding along men with the tackles, and in the dark Jack was upset, and half a dozen marines fell upon him. The men, who had no idea that an officer was flawed among the others, were pleased at the joke, and continued to dance over those who were down, until they rolled themselves out of the way. Jack, who did not understand this, fared badly, and it was not till the calls piped belay that he could recover his legs after having been trampled upon by half the starboard watch, and the breath completely jammed out of his body, Jack reeled to a cannonade slide when the officers, who had been laughing at the lark as well as the men, perceived his situation. Among others, Mr. Sawbridge, the first lieutenant. "'Are you hurt, Mr. Easy?' he said kindly. "'A little,' replied Jack, catching his breath. "'You've had a rough welcome,' replied the first lieutenant. "'But at certain times on board ship it is every man for himself, and God for us all.' Harper, continued the first lieutenant to the doctor, take Mr. Easy down to the gun-room with you, and I will be down myself as soon as I can. Where is Mr. Jolliffe? Here, sir, replied Mr. Jolliffe, a master's mate, coming aft from the booms. Here is a youngster come on board with the captain. Order one of the quartermasters to get a hammock slung. In the meantime Jack went down into the gun-room, where a glass of wine somewhat recovered him. He did not stay there long, nor did he venture to talk much. As soon as his hammock was ready, Jack was glad to go to bed, and, as he was much bruised, he was not disturbed the next morning till past nine o'clock. He then dressed himself, went on deck, found that the sloop was just clear of the needles, that he felt very queer, then very sick was conducted by a marine down below, put into his hammock, where he remained during a gale of wind of three days, bewildered, confused, puzzled, and every minute knocking his head against the beams with the pitching and tossing of the sloop. "'And this is going to sea,' thought Jack. "'No wonder that no one interferes with another here, or talks about a trespass, for I am sure any one is welcome to my share of the ocean and if I once get on shore again, the devil may have my portion if he chooses." Captain Wilson and Mr. Sawbridge had both allowed Jack more leisure than most midshipmen during his illness. 
By the time that the gale was over, the sloop was off Cape Finisterre. The next morning the sea was nearly down, and there was but a slight breeze on the waters. The comparative quiet of the night before had very much recovered our hero, and when the hammocks were piped up he was accosted by Mr. Jolliffe, the master's mate, who asked, "'Whether he intended to rouse and bit, or whether he intended to sail to Gibraltar between his blankets?' Jack, who felt himself quite another person, turned out of his hammock and dressed himself. A marine had, by the captain's orders, attended Jack during his illness, and this man came to his assistance, opened his chest, and brought him all he required, or Jack would have been in a sad dilemma. Jack then inquired where he was to go, for he had not been in the midshipman's berth, although five days on board. The marine pointed it out to him, and Jack, who felt excessively hungry, crawled over in between chests, until he found himself fairly in a hole infinitely inferior to the dog-kennels which received his father's pointers. "'I'd not only give up the ocean,' thought Jack, "'and my share of it, but also my share of the harpy under any one who fancies it. Equality enough here, for every one appears equally miserably off." As he thus gave vent to his thoughts, he perceived that there was another person in the berth—Mr. Jolliffe, the master's mate, who had fixed his eye upon Jack, and to whom Jack returned the compliment. The first thing that Jack observed was that Mr. Jolliffe was very deeply pockmarked, and that he had but one eye, and that was a piercer. It appeared like a little ball of fire, and as if it reflected more light from the solitary candle than the candle gave. "'I don't like your looks,' thought Jack. "'We shall never be friends.' But here Jack fell into the common error of judging by appearances, as will be proved hereafter. "'I'm glad to see you up again, youngster,' said Jolliffe. "'You've been on your beam-ends longer than usual. But those who are strongest suffer most. You've made your mind up but late to come to sea. However, they say, better late than never." "'I feel very much inclined to argue the truth of that saying,' replied Jack. "'But it's no use just now. I'm terribly hungry. When shall I get some breakfast?' "'Tomorrow morning at half-past eight,' replied Mr. Jolliffe. "'Breakfast for to-day has been over these two hours.' But must I then go without?" "'No, I did not say that, as we must make allowance for your illness. But it will not be breakfast.' "'Call it what you please,' replied Jack. "'Only pray desire the servants to give me something to eat. Dry toast or muffins, anything will do, but I should prefer coffee.' "'You forget that you are off Finisterre in a midshipman's berth. Coffee we have none. Muffins we never see. Dry toast cannot be made, as we have no soft bread. But a cup of tea and ship's biscuit and butter I can desire the steward to get ready for you." "'Well, then,' replied Jack, "'I will thank you to procure me that.' "'Marine!' cried Jolliffe. "'Call Mesty!' "'Pass the word for Mesty!' cried the Marine and the two syllables were handed forward until lost in the forepart of the vessel. The person so named must be introduced to the reader. He was a curious anomaly—a black man who had been brought to America as a slave, 
and there sold. He was very tall, spare-built, yet muscular form, and had a face by no means common with his race. His head was long and narrow, high cheekbones from whence his face descended down almost to a point at his chin. His nose was very small, but it was straight and almost Roman. His mouth also was unusually small, and his lips thin for an African. His teeth very white, and filed to sharp points. He claimed the rank of prince in his own country, with what truth could not of course be substantiated. His master had settled at New York, and there Mesty had learned English, if it could be so called. The fact is that all the emigrant labourers at New York being Irishmen, he had learned English with the strong brogue and peculiar phraseology of the sister kingdom, dashed with a little Yankeeism. Having been told that there was no slavery in England, Mesty had concealed himself on board an English merchant vessel, and escaped. On his arrival in England he had entered on board a man-of-war. Having no name it was necessary to christen him on the ship's books, and the first lieutenant, who had entered him, struck with this remarkable expression of countenance, and being a German scholar, had named him Mephistopheles Faust, from whence his Christian name had been raised to Messi. Messi, in all other points, was an eccentric character. At one moment, when he remembered his lineage, he was proud to excess. At others he was grave and almost sullen, but when nothing either in daily occurrences or in his mind ran contrary, he exhibited the drollery so often found in his nation with a spice of Irish humour, as if he had caught up the latter with his Irish brogue. Mesty was soon seen coming aft, but almost double as he crouched under the beam, and taking large strides with his naked feet. "'By the purrs, Master Yalloaf, but it is not seasonable at all to send for me just now, anyhow, seeing how the praters are in the copper, and so many blackguard palpines all ready to charge net for net, and better themselves by the same mistake, damn em. Mesty, you know I never send for you myself, or allow others to do so unless it is necessary," replied Jolliffe. But this poor lad has eaten nothing since he has been on board, and is very hungry. You must get him a little tea. Is it tea you mean, sir? I guess to make tea in the first place I must have water, and in the next I must have room in the galley to put the kettle on, and pose you wanted to burn the tip of your little finger just now. It's not in the galley that you find a berth for it, and den the water before seven bells. I've a notion it's just impossible. But he must have something, Mesty. Never mind the tea, then, replied Jack. I'll take some milk. Is it milk, Massa means, and a bumble woman on the other side of the bay? We have no milk, Mr. Easy. You forget that we are on blue water, replied Jolliffe and I really am afraid that you'll have to wait till dinner-time. Mesty tells the truth." "'I'll tell you what, Master Yolliffe, it's just seven bells, and if the young gentleman would, instead of tay, try a little out of the copper, it might keep him easy. It but a little difference, tay soup and pay soup. Now a bowl of that, with some nuts and a flourish of pepper, will do him good anyhow. Perhaps the best he can take, Mesty. 
get it as fast as you can. In a few minutes the black brought down a bowl of soup and whole peas swimming in it, put before our hero a tin bread basket full of small biscuit, called midshipman's nuts, and the pepper-caster. Jack's visions of tea, coffee, muffins, dry toast, and milk vanished as he perceived the mess, but he was very hungry, and he found it much better than he had expected, and he, moreover, found himself much the better after he had swallowed it. It struck seven bells, and he accompanied Mr. Jolliffe on deck. End of chapter 9